You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Well, we're talking about forming faith and character, a subject that's near and dear to me. And really, when you think about it, one of the greatest needs in our nation today, we as a nation are slowly descending into uh, a, a place where men and women are not being raised with character anymore. Character is not something that's upheld in a society. It is in God's economy. I can assure you that. And we're going to see today. In fact, we've been, we've been studying this the last several chapters of David's life. As God has allowed David to be in a very difficult situation. All for the purpose of forming godly character, strengthening his faith. So listen, brother and sister, you might be in a place like that today and know that this, that God is with you. He has a plan. He has a good thing that he's working in you through this time in your life as he builds you. How many of you guys remember that line in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Everybody remember that line, right? Lead us not into temptation. What does that mean? That's a confusing line. The Greek word translated for temptation in the Lord's Prayer is pirasmus, which also means test or trial. So that you could also say that you're praying, Lord, lead me not into testing or lead me not into a trial. Now, we know that God doesn't tempt his children to sin. That's why we know that it's not a negative thing. God wouldn't lead us into being, uh, you know, tempted by sin. But God does lead us into places of allowing us to be tested. James chapter 1 and verse 13 reminds us of that. It says this. It says, and remember, when you're being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. You see, God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. So it's not God who tempts you sinfully. Those temptations, James goes on to say, come from within ourselves. But God will allow us to be tested. He orchestrates situations in which our willingness to obey God is going to be proved. It's not because God needs to know where you stand. It's not like God is watching you in the test going, okay, is he a real Christian or not? God knows. The test is really for you. The test is for you as an individual to find out so you can see what's inside of your own heart, what's going on in your own life. You see, God allows us to be brought into those trials where we're going to to learn about ourselves, how much we need him. Remember, Jesus himself was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, wasn't he? Jesus was led, it, it actually says that he was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness, where he was going to be tested. Guys, this is how growth and true love of the no- and knowledge of the living God is perfected in our lives. There's no shortcuts to it. There's no way around it. If you are going to have a deep, lasting relationship with God, you're going to have to get to know Him. And one of the best ways that you can get to know God is in a trial, is in a place of testing. In the chapters we're going to cover today, we see David being tested by God and tempted by his own flesh to kill Saul. And therefore, it begs the question, how is a godly person's character formed? 
How will God go about forming your character? Christian, if you're here today, know this. God has a plan to refine your faith. And he's going to do that through testing as he orchestrates different circumstances which give the opportunity for you to live out your convictions. That's how character is formed. Every time that you stand on a conviction, your character becomes stronger. Every time that you give in and you compromise, your character is weakened. That's what they call the character gap. There's a gap between what you say you believe and what you're actually doing. Godly character closes that gap, and God is seeking to refine you in your life. And that's what we see in these chapters. God is forming David's godly character by testing his faith. Now, in these passages we're covering, there are six essential elements, if you're following along on your notes there. We're going to cover those so that we can extract and understand the lessons of chapters 24 and 26. Some of you are going, oh no, two chapters. Hold on. We're going to cover both of them at the same time. They're very similar to each other. In fact, they mirror each other in a lot of ways. So I just extracted the six common elements from both chapters and we're going to take a look at those today. So let's dive into the first one where we see that Saul initiates persecution but it's God who's orchestrating the circumstance. Look at uh, 1 Samuel 24. We're going to read verse 1 and 2. And, and by the way we'll be skipping between 24 and 26 so just kind of keep your place in both chapters. It says, after Saul returned from fighting the Philistines he was told that David had gone into the wilderness of En so Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all Israel and went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. So David has withdrawn now into a place in the wilderness called En Gedi. Now, of course, it's easy to read that name and not really associate it with anything. So I've prepared a video for you guys this morning just to check out a little bit about this place in Gedi. I visited this place when I was in Israel a year ago. It was beautiful. It's amazing. Uh, but I want to show you guys, just to introduce you to a little bit more of it. And then I'm going to show you some pictures of my own a little bit later on in our study today as well. Not too far of a drive north from our pleasant stay at the Dead Sea is Ein Gedi. To get there, you will drive through the desert on a highway that sometimes runs right along the Dead Sea. Depending on the time of year you visit, it will likely be hot or very hot. Buy some water. In a few spots around here, there are incredible natural freshwater springs that rise from the Dead Sea Basin. One of these is Ein Gedi, made famous by David in the Bible as one of his favorite hiding spots. The important biblical location of Ein Gedi was declared to be a protected nature reserve in 1971. To the west of the preserve is the Judean Desert, and the eastern border is the Dead Sea. In the desert, flowing water means life. There are two large spring-fed streams that flow here year-round. The area teems with life, and it is a very enjoyable place to visit. It was here in these caves above me that David and his mighty men hid from King Saul, who was out to destroy the upstart warrior poet. David and his men had a pretty nice spot here, with food, water, and a vantage point that could see enemies coming for miles.
While the Jordan River to the north provides most of the water flowing into the Dead Sea, there are no outlets. And there are no outlets for the simple reason that the Dead Sea area is the lowest dry land on planet Earth. It's 1,300 feet below sea level. Now, given that water does not flow uphill, the fact that there is no outlet was one of those duh moments for me. I'm a little embarrassed to admit this. I keep hearing that there are no outlets to the Dead Sea and that's why it's so salty. Then one day, the light bulb went on. Well, of course there are no outlets. It's pretty much the bottom of the planet. Okay, I get it. There are many species of resident birds here at Ein Gedi, and these are supplemented by over 200 additional bird species that rest here during migration periods in the spring and fall. A gnarly-looking species of wild goat called an ibex is prominent here, and you will see them scampering along the cliff sides. Yeah, that's right, I said scampering. Because of the water, the area is also known for its plants and wildlife. It's mentioned in the Song of Songs 114. My lover is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. Henna blossoms are flowers that are grown in this part of the world, and they're very fragrant, so fragrant, in fact, that they're used for perfume, and brides are often decorated with them on their wedding day. All right, so now you got a little bit better picture of what it's like there in Engedi, where David would have been uh, hiding out. And as I said, I've got a few more pictures a little bit later on to show you where I think maybe the cave was, okay? Of course, that's just according to Phil McKay. I wasn't there. Uh, it's just my guess. But let's, let's get back into our story very quickly. Remember that David is hiding out near the rocks of the wild goats. Now, you guys saw the, the rocks with the wild goats running around on them. That's kind of the, the terrain that David was hiding out in. But Saul comes out to kill him in this wilderness area. Because he's so jealous, he's so insecure, that it's gotten to a point now where he hates David. And now he's enlisted 3,000 troops to come out into the wilderness and find him and kill him. How did Saul get to this point, though? Saul got to this point, if you'll remember, because he turned away from following the Lord. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, it all started when, Sam, when Saul took things into his own hands. He, he couldn't wait for Samuel to get there, so he took things into his own hands and he rejected the command of the Lord. He also rejected the command of the Lord and was not obedient in following the Lord's instructions with the people of Amalek. If you remember that story, you can read it again in, in chapter 15. But that's how Saul has gotten to this point. His rebellion came from rejecting the Lord's command. It was a symptom of forsaking the Lord in his heart. Now, Saul serves as a reminder to you and I this morning, guys, that we need to be careful. We need to be careful that we're not people who are rejecting the Lord's commands, that we're not forsaking the Lord in our hearts. You see, Saul has done this for so long, he's grown insecure and jealous, it's turned into hatred, so much so that now he's obsessed with killing David. The same thing can happen to any one of us as we forsake the Lord in our hearts, as we reject the Lord's commands, and as we begin to live out in our flesh more and more. So let's learn from Saul. Now, unbeknownst to Saul, this is all part of God's plan. God is orchestrating these circumstances. That brings us to the second essential element of these two chapters today, and that is that the Lord orchestrated the test of David's character 
But this temptation to kill Saul, that comes from within David's own heart, okay? That's not something that God gave to David. That's something that David has in his own heart. So you can see how this works together. God orchestrates the circumstances of the test, but the temptation to sin comes from within David himself, just like temptation to sin comes from within your heart and my heart. Now, as we're covering these two chapters... I've labeled these two opportunities to kill Saul as chance of a lifetime number one and chance of a lifetime number two for David. Look with me in 1 Samuel 24, verse 3. We see chance of a lifetime number one. It says, At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding further back in that very cave. Here's chance of a lifetime number one for David. Listen, with temperatures soaring to over 120 degrees Fahrenheit, no doubt a cool, shady cave would have been a relief and a great place to relieve yourself too. <clears throat> I want to show you guys really quickly a couple of pictures from my own uh, camera while I was there in in Gedi. Here you see some of the terrain. There's a cave there hidden in the background. I tried to zoom in on that a little bit and look at what that would look like. I, I don't know how David and all his men would fit in there. And I don't know if Saul would have wanted to climb in that one. But I did find a, a nice big one in this area right here where the waterfall was coming down. They, they, they say that there's been several earthquakes in the region. They believe that at one time the overhang would have been a much deeper. It would have been a much deeper recess with the water flowing out of a spring inside of that. And so uh, I, I thought, hey, this could be a great option. Uh, and if you see, it's, it looks like it kind of goes back in there and you could hide a lot of men perhaps in there, especially if it was, you know, after the earthquake or before the earthquakes and there was more of an overhang there. At any rate, I, I took a little video just of my own. Here in Engedi, the Judean wilderness, where David was hiding out from King Saul, and where it says in 1 Samuel 24 that David had an opportunity to kill Saul, but he didn't take it. And Saul was relieving himself in a cave. So, yeah, that's just my own take on it, real silently. You know, I'm not very experienced at this, okay? So, you got to give me a little break here on that, but. It's a start, okay? I'll try to do better next time I go. But there, there's, the, there's the, the picture for you guys of, and, and as Saul's taking his potty break, perhaps in this cave, he relaxes his guard. He sets his robe aside. Maybe he even fell asleep. I don't know, you know. Maybe he was, you know, pretty relaxed. But whatever he was doing, it afforded David with the opportunity of a lifetime to take his life. Now, let's look at chance of a lifetime number two. Flip over to 1 Samuel 26, verse 5. And I want to read verse 5, and then we'll skip down and read verse 7. It says, David slipped over to Saul's camp one night to look around. Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of his army, were sleeping inside a ring formed by the slumbering warriors. Now skip down to verse 7. It says, So David and Abishai went right into Saul's camp, found him asleep, with his spear stuck in the ground beside his head, and Abner and the soldiers were lying asleep around him. Chance of a lifetime number two right there in David's life. Guys, if this was a SEAL Team 6, they wouldn't have hesitated, right? They'd have taken Saul out. 
This was the opportunity of a lifetime. Just imagine how the temptation must have played out in David's mind. He must have been thinking, here's my chance. I can get my life back. In one thrust of this spear, I could be king, get my house back, go back to visit my wife, and get back to worshiping the Lord on a regular schedule in the tabernacle. Back to comfort, a comfortable life. Listen, in both of these situations, that is the temptation that David is facing. And guess what? David's men were egging him on. That's the third element of our story this morning. David's men see only an opportunity here to kill Saul and to retaliate. They're egging him on. They're not helping David with the temptation that's inside his own mind. It says in 1 Samuel 24, verse 4, if you flip back there, verse 4 of chapter 24 says, Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So notice here, David's kind of, he's listening to the men. They're egging him on. So he, he crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of David's robe. Now here's something I want you to see about David's men. As they're looking at the situation, they believe the Lord has delivered Saul into David's hands. They think, hey, You'd be stupid not to take this opportunity, David. They see the circumstances alone as this is the Lord telling you to do this. But let me caution all of us here as we study the Bible this morning. We need to be very careful about seeing circumstances alone as God's way of speaking to us and telling us to do something. You know, a lot of times in Christian circles, we hear that cliche about the open door. We need to be careful about that. Just because the door is open doesn't necessarily mean God wants you to step through it or to take that opportunity. When we see an open door, when we see an opportunity, listen, we should not just rely on the circumstance as God's word to us. We need to bring in the word of God, the the Bible, right? We need to ask God to speak to us through his word to confirm if this opportunity is really from him or not. We need to lean on godly counsel from other mature godly Christians in our lives, as well as having the peace of the Holy Spirit. You see, if you're a, a student, if you're, a, a, if you're living in your parents' home, let me encourage you, God has placed your parents in your life to direct you. To, to help you make good decisions in your life. And, and for, if you shun their counsel and you don't seek that out, listen, you could, be, you could be totally cutting yourself off from God's direction for your life. But not only that, just because we have an opportunity in front of us doesn't mean we should take it. Remember how the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tested? I brought that up at the beginning of our message. Remember that moment? One of the temptations that Satan offered to Jesus was a shortcut to become the king of kings. Remember that? The ruler of the entire world. All Jesus had to do was to bow down to Satan just one time and to worship him. Just once, Satan said. Take a knee one time and Jesus could have avoided the cross, the suffering, the pain of dying, that cruel Roman crucifixion death. But listen, Jesus knew that if he did that, that would also violate the greatest commandment of all, 
which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul, and to serve Him only. So taking the opportunity that seems to be a shortcut to a desired end, that might just cause you to hurt your relationship with God and to break the first and greatest commandment, which is to love God with all of your heart. That's often what pragmatism leads us to, and that's what David's men are a lesson about. You see, David's men, they see a shortcut to a desired end. They're pragmatic. Hey, why not take the expedient route to the kingship, David? Just kill this guy. You see, they don't see morally. They're concerned with expediency. That's the pragmatist approach. Brothers and sisters, how many of us are guilty of the same approach to life? We don't approach our life seeking the Lord's counsel. We approach our lives thinking, okay, what's the easiest way to get this done? What's the most expedient way to get to what I need and what I think is going to make me comfortable? David's men don't understand that David will lose moral high ground before all of the people of Israel and before his own family, as well as before Saul. They don't see spiritually that God is testing David's character here, that it's about David's love and faith. You see, a shortcut here bypasses moral character lessons that make all the difference in life. Let me say that again. Shortcuts bypass moral lessons that God wants you to learn that will give you true success for the rest of your life. And this is what David, who was more spiritually aware and more spiritually mature than his men, he understood this. And that brings us to the fourth essential element of our story this morning. That is that David sees Saul as God's anointed one to help accomplish the will of God in his life. David had grown to a point where he could see that Saul was being used by the Lord in his life to accomplish a good purpose. And so rather than take him out, David chooses to love his enemy. 1 Samuel 24 verse 5 says, But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul that is character. Could you do that? Could I do that? I honestly don't know. <laughs> Actually, if I'm being honest, I probably wouldn't have hesitated to take Saul's life. And, and if we're honest, I think all of us are, kind of feel that way. But David here sets an example for the believer to follow in future generations, guys. He's a, a type if you will, a picture of what believers should strive to do. What is that? Well, first of all, we see him pursuing godly character with his life. Believers, you that trust Jesus Christ, you that, 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 that are following the path of Christianity, listen, no one expects you to be perfect. You're not called to be perfect. Well, I, I take that back. You are called to be perfect. That's God's standard. But we know that none of us are going to achieve that standard in ourselves. That righteousness doesn't come from us. That perfection doesn't come from us. It comes from Jesus Christ's death on the cross for us. He died to make us righteous. But listen, that doesn't get us off the hook. Our life's pursuit should be character. Our life's pursuit should be that standard that God has set for us. But 
And David's an example of that here because as he cuts the robe, his conscience is bothered by that. He realizes he's done this to the Lord's anointed and, and he doesn't have a pure conscience anymore. So what does he do? He makes it right with the Lord. And then the next time in 1 Samuel 26, when he gets opportunity of a lifetime number two or chance of a lifetime number two, he changes his behavior. And instead of doing anything to Saul or Saul's clothing, he only takes his spear, which he then later returns. Can you imagine that? The spear that Saul has thrown at David so many times. He takes that spear and, and gives it back to him. But notice he's gone through a transformation. It's a positive transformation. David grows in godly character. That's because this is his pursuit. Now, I know so many Christians that strive for perfection. Guess what? You'll never hit it. I, I myself was that man striving for perfection. And, 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 and you know, I, what ended up happening is I ended up making a, a, a double life, really. There was the double life, the, the, the life I showed everybody else. Oh, yeah, I've got it together. But then there was the real me who didn't have it together at all, and I was beating myself up and living in condemnation because I wasn't victorious. But you know what changed? Was that I realized, okay, it's not about being perfect. I'm never going to be perfect. It's about Jesus being perfect for me. And as I trust him and rest in him, guess what? I pursue the life that God wants me to pursue. He'll take care of the rest. You see, God's on my side. He's an advocate. And, and, and when I sin, he's for me, not against me. He's saying, oh, Phil, you, you blew it, but it's okay. Get back up and keep coming. I'm with you. I'm not against you. And that's, that's what changed. And David had grasped that, and he's running towards the Lord. Secondly, David sees Saul as a God-given opportunity to grow in godliness and in loyalty to the Lord. In other words, David recognizes that Saul's anointing doesn't necessarily mean he deserves to be the king, but he still respects and honors the position. How many of you guys have ever been on an athletics team where your coach perhaps wasn't the best godly example? I've been on several myself. How about in a job situation where your supervisor is not a godly person who has godly objectives in mind? I've been in that situation too. Did you know that God can work through those authority figures in your life for good? He can, he, he can hammer out in you a godly character in the midst of those who are above you not being godly themselves. That's what David learns. And so he says, you know what, I'm not going to take Saul out because I understand God. Er, Saul is God's instrument in my life to test David's character and to form me into the man or woman God wants me to be. Hey, did you know your husband and wife could also be that person? <laughs> your husband and wife can also be God's chisel. Now, some of you are you're thinking, oh, man, that's not the way I want to think of my husband or my wife as God's chisel. But listen, God can use your marriage relationship to make you into a man or woman of character. I know from experience. My marriage has been something that God has used to help transform me as a Christian, as a believer. I know marriage is not easy. I've gone through a lot in my marriage. But thankfully, God is with me each step of the way. And, and, and I'm not saying on behalf of Rebecca. I'm talking about my own thick-headedness. My own uh, uh, bad character has, has ne needed to be transformed as I've gone along. But listen, this also applies to leadership. It doesn't matter if it's Donald Trump, guys, or Joe Biden for president, okay? 
And I'm not making any predictions or calls. I'm just saying that we know that whoever God raises up, it's going to be because God raises them up. And, and, and for that reason, we can trust that the Lord has a purpose in it. Whether it's Donald Trump or, you know, whoever it is out of the other 20 candidates that are running. I don't know who that's going to be, but David recognizes this. He also recognizes there'll be a reward for, what's doing right, or for doing what is right. Look at 1 Samuel 26 with me, verse 22 and 23. It says, David speaking to Saul, he says, Here's your spear, O king. David replied, Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord gives his own reward for doing good and for being loyal. And I refused to kill you even when the Lord placed you in my power. For you are the Lord's anointed one. Did you notice right there, David understands he's going to receive a reward for doing what's right? To receive a reward for making the right choice, that's a biblical concept. Jesus taught that to his disciples as well. And so let me encourage you guys, it's not selfish to think, I, I am looking forward to the reward that God has in store for making right choices and right decisions. And you, did you know that a lot of times that reward is given to you right here in the earth? It's a spiritual principle that if you sow to spiritual things, you will reap spiritual benefits. And, and your character will grow. You're going to get stronger. Sin is not going to dominate you as easily. You're not going to be falling as much. Things are going to change in your life as you continue to pursue godly character. That is a lot of times the just reward of just pursuing Jesus, being in a relationship with the Lord. James chapter 1 and verse 12 says this, it'll be on your screen, says that God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. I don't know about you guys, but I'm excited to know that God rewards those who trust in him through their trials, just like David was doing. Coming back to that, the fourth thing that David is an example to us believers in is that David trusts in the Lord to rescue him ultimately. Why do I bring this up? Well, fl flip to 1 Samuel 26 and look at verse 24 again with me. David says, now may the Lord value my life even as I have valued yours today. May he rescue me from all my troubles. Notice that David was looking to the Lord to rescue him. Not just from Saul, but from all his troubles. We have to be careful about the source of our trust when it comes to trials and tests. You see, there's a strong movement out there today to trust in yourself, to trust in the power of humanity. I was just watching the... Uh, Captain Marvel movie with a few of my kids. And one of the things that stands out about that movie is this idea of the power of humanity, right? I don't want to ruin the movie for anybody, but basically the, the, the protagonist is constantly coming back and coming back and coming back. And the idea is that, hey, you can't keep her down. And, and, and it's a great story. It's a great movie. I'm not knocking it in any way. Just saying that there's a real push today towards trusting in this, this power of self. And it's all cloaked in very attractive packaging. It's promoted and it's accepted by the world. It's very popular. It's a very popular message. It's in athletics. It's in schools. It's in religion even. It's everywhere. And listen, that is why it is so dangerous. 
to place your trust in yourself, to promote human effort itself as the answer to life's greatest tests and trials will fall completely and utterly short of God's grace. It falls short of God's gift of salvation. In fact, to claim that it's all by human effort and all because of you and your own self and your strength, guess what? That spits in the face of Jesus Christ. It denies that he even needed to die for the sins and the brokenness of humanity. So let us be very careful not to trust in human ingenuity and might, but to trust only in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who alone takes away the sins of the world. You trust anything else, you're going to come up short on the day that you stand before the Lord. A person with godly character, though, is someone who says not, I can do it. I can do it. That's not what the godly person says. The godly person says, rather, it is God who works in me both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It's Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Well, we've come now to the fifth essential element of these two chapters, and that is that David confronts Saul with evidence that he could have killed him, but chose not to. Pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 26. We're going to read verse 12 and 13. We read, So David took the spear and jug of water that were near Saul's head. Then he and Abishai got away without anyone seeing them or even waking up because the Lord had put Saul's men into a deep sleep. Notice again, the hand of the Lord is with David. He's orchestrating the circumstances for this test. Verse 13. David climbed the hill opposite the camp until he was at a safe distance. Now let's skip down to verse 17. Saul recognized David's voice and called out, Is that you, my son David? And David replied, Yes, my lord the king. Why are you chasing me? What have I done? What is my crime? But now let my lord the king listen to his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, then let him accept my offering. But if this is simply a human scheme then may those involved be cursed by the Lord. For they have driven me from my home so I can no longer live among the Lord's people and, have, and they have said, go worship pagan gods. Must I die on foreign soil, far from the presence of the Lord? Why has the king of Israel come to search for a single flea? Why does he hunt me down like a partridge on the mountains? Listen, David here is confronting Saul. He's letting him know, listen, I'm innocent of the charges. I don't know why you're coming after me. And he's standing up for what is right. And I want to tell you guys today, pursuing godly character is always going to pay off in the long run. Why is that? Well, number one, it's given David the moral high ground here. He can say to Saul, hey, you're pursuing me unjustly. I've not done anything wrong to you, and and I don't have anything in my heart against you. But secondly, because David has chosen to pursue godly character, he has a clear conscience. How many of you can say amen to a clear conscience, the power of a clear conscience? The power of a clear conscience is something that we can't say enough about. David has that here. Lastly, we come to the final essential element where Saul shows remorse, but does not repent. Look at 1 Samuel 26 in verse 21. 
after being confronted, Saul confessed, I have sinned. Come back home, my son, and I will no longer try to harm you, for you have valued my life today. I have been a fool and very, very wrong. Pause right there. How do we know that Saul showed remorse and not repentance? Well, he never received David back. David continued to be a fugitive until Saul died. If Saul would have repented in his heart, if he would have said, you know what, Lord, I repent from my bitterness, my jealousy, my anger, my pursuit of David. I'm going to back off. I'm going to recognize, Lord, you, you made him king. And Lord, I'm going to do what I can to pour into him and to train him up and to teach him what he needs to know from my part. I think this story could be totally different. I think Saul's end would have been totally different. But guess what? He had a hardened heart. He never, ever repented. He felt sorry about what he did. But notice there's a difference between remorse and repentance, guys. Remorse is, oh, I'm so sorry I did that. But it's more out of the reason like, oh, I got caught in this. And now there's bad consequences and I don't want to face them. That's remorse. Repentance is when we change our mind about the sin. We change our mind about what we're doing to ourselves. And we recognize the Lord's way is best. And we confess that to him. God, I've sinned against you. God, I've done the wrong thing here. And I'm coming to you, Lord. And I'm asking you to help me get right and to set things right. This verse, though, becomes Saul's epitaph. The epitaph there is, I have been a fool and very, very wrong. This is the last time David's going to see Saul. Saul's going to go back to his palace. He's going to go out and fight a war against the Philistines. And his life is going to end, and we're going to cover that coming weeks. But don't let this epitaph become your epitaph here today. Don't let this be what is written, maybe not in words, but in the thoughts and minds of people who see your gravestone one day. As they look and they see that gravestone and they think, man, he was a fool. Or man, she didn't, she didn't follow through with her good intentions. See, Saul had many good intentions. His problem was found that he was not trusting in the Lord. His problem was that sinful human nature that was in rebellion against his creator and was controlling his life. Hey, Mark 14, 38 says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Guys, if we don't learn to crucify our flesh, we allow it to control our lives, we'll end up like Saul, saying at the end of our days, hey, I've been a fool. I've been very, very wrong. The issue, though, guys, is not reformation, it's rebirth. By reformation, I'm talking about you're trying and trying and trying in your own strength to reform your ways. It's not about reformation. It's about rebirth. Ultimately, it's about needing Jesus. He's the only answer to changing our lives. Once we have Jesus, then we need to enter into his training program. You see, a lot of Christians stop when they get Jesus. They think, oh, okay, preacher said if I get Jesus... It's all good. So they'll come down, they'll pray the prayer, they'll think that they got Jesus and then they're done. But that's not it, guys. It's you need Jesus and you need Jesus' training program. Jesus called disciples, not believers. He called them to follow him. So 
that training program looks like scripture meditation, scripture memorization, walking in obedience in small things. That's where it starts. Jesus said in John 15, 15, or 15, 5, he said, yes, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, saying a prayer doesn't change your life. Going forward at an altar call doesn't change your life. It's remaining in Christ and allowing God to build godly character in you. It's pursuing Jesus that produces fruit in your life. So how is a person's godly character formed? How will God go about forming your faith? He does it simply through testing as God orchestrates the circumstances which give you an opportunity to stand on your convictions. I would venture to say that most of you here this morning, first service on a Sunday morning, are already saved. In other words, you've put your faith in Christ. How many of you are going to take it to the next level of saying, you know what, now I'm going to go home and this week I'm going to live out my convictions. I know the stuff. I've been to church. I've heard the Bible studies preached. I know the principles. But now you're going to be challenged to stand on them. When, it, when you're tired, you get off work and you come home and you flip on Netflix or Hulu or you know, TV, whatever it's going to be, and that program or that show comes up and it's tempting your flesh and you've got an opportunity to say no and to do something else, to put on something more edifying. You're going to get an opportunity this week to stand on conviction. Listen, that's how the character gap closes. Every time you take a stand for what's right, and you say, okay, I'm going to do like David did. He had an opportunity, but I'm not going to take that opportunity. Instead, I'm going to trust the Lord, and I'm going to do the right thing here. As you do that, that character cap is going to close, and guess what? God is going to be using you more and more frequently. Why? Because your conscience is clear. You're going to have power with God and with men. It's just a natural result, guys. We see it happening in David's life. It's playing out before us. Let it play out in your life as well. Let's pray.